Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivaglani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm privileged to be joined by Dr. Ken Johnson. Dr. Johnson has been the Executive Dean of Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine since the summer of 2012. In addition to his duties as Executive Dean, in January 2018, Dr. Johnson was chosen to also serve as Chief Medical Affairs Officer for Ohio University. Nationally, he is active in educational policy and holds numerous leadership roles within the osteopathic medical profession. So Dr. Johnson, thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, thanks. It's an honor to be here. And you make me sound like a busy guy. <laughs> it's not, I think you probably are busy and maybe even busier now in the, the past few months, given all that's going on. I'm curious, how did you get in, involved in, um, in the medical field? Uh, what was your pathway to becoming a doctor and, and specifically in osteopathic medicine as well? Yeah, you know, I, I think I was always really interested in health and, and wellness. This will date me a little bit, but my mom bought us the, like, the Encyclopedia Britannica. And I was always, always really interested in anatomy and physiology and things like that, which I think sparked my interest in, in health and wellness. And uh, then really wanted to become a physician. I grew up in Massachusetts. I didn't really know much about osteopathic medicine. And then after graduating from undergrad, discovered on osteopathic medicine and the philosophy and the approach was right up my alley. It was absolutely what I believed in, what I wanted to do. And that's what drew me to, to osteopathic medicine and to you know, eventually what I'm doing here now. That's awesome. Um, I'm curious. So how did you go from practicing medicine to then getting into academic uh, appointments and, and more leadership roles? Yeah, I actually all through on um, medical school, I had some teaching role. I actually did an undergraduate teaching fellowship in medical school. I spent an extra year teaching anatomy uh, and an osteopathic manipulative on medicine. And that really sparked a love for, um, for teaching for me. I was drawn to it. And then as uh, I entered my family medicine on residency, had a lot of opportunity to teach, um, particularly as a senior resident to junior residents. And for some reason, didn't really think about becoming a teacher until the residency director for the residency that I was in said, hey, did you ever think about being a faculty member? And I was like, no, but that sounds good to me. Tell me more. And practiced on, in a family medicine residency for about a decade, was the chief medical officer in a rural setting, and then and got more into the medical school training on here over the last about 15 years or so. So osteopathic medicine as a field has grown tremendously. Um, uh, we had uh, Dr. Kane from uh, ACOM on a couple of weeks ago, and he was telling us a bit about this. But I'm curious, from your perspective, when you first started as a medical student, do you know about how many schools and students there were? And then, and now... Yeah, Dr. Kane and I are somewhat contemporary. So we had about 15 colleges of osteopathic medicine when we were in medical school, and there's about... 50 locations on right now around the country. One in four students of medicine are osteopathic medical students, and we're the fastest growing healthcare profession in the United States today. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, and one thing I was curious about too is, you know, there are a lot of professions that start in the U.S., um, uh, like nurse practitioner or osteopathic medicine. Uh, are there plans for DO programs to expand internationally as well? Yeah, on, we've been working as a profession for more than a decade for full practice rights for on osteopathic physicians around the globe. There's uh, many countries that have that in place right now. And I think early thinking among a number of people around bringing the osteopathic approach to healthcare, the medicine approach on worldwide. That's, that's great to hear. So going into your role at Ohio University, uh, would love to hear a bit more about you know the path from 2012 to now. 
kind of how you like what what you basically have done on a day-to-day basis because you you wear a lot of different hats and you are yeah. busy um yeah. so what what does your day-to-day look like at this point yeah well I was, I was recruited to ohio university to open two new medical school campuses on one in central ohio with ohio health and another in northeast ohio in cleveland with the cleveland clinic and uh, so we went from from one to two to three campuses in a very short period of time it uh, led us to be on the largest public uh, medical school in the state and only multi-campus uh, medical school in the state. I feel really blessed to have great partners. On uh, I just got off a video call with on uh, leadership of Ohio Health right before this and planning elements of our partnership together. But what it's really allowed us to do is we have a statewide footprint for our academic campuses and on um, placing students really around the state of Ohio. That's one of the mandates is to, to maybe have as many students from in-state enroll in the program or, or at least people who come from out of state to stay in state and, and practice in rural yeah, settings? It's, it's both of those things. So we are uh, very focused on osteopathic on primary care as our as our goal. It really was why we were founded, draw our students from the state, training them in the state. Uh, I think an interesting piece of the medical school is that 30% of our students are the first in their family to go to college, you know, not medical school, college. So we draw students from rural, underserved, underrepresented, and bring them in uh, and have some good pipeline programs uh, to bring them in and, su- and support them. But I think that's part of um, our, our secret sauce of our success of placing students in the communities because we draw them from the communities, train them in the communities and they stay there. Our central and Northeast Ohio campuses, about 80% of the students are from a one hour geography from around those campuses which is a pretty unusual thing when you think about uh, medical school and drawing students from a bunch of different places around the country. That That's an incredible statistic. The 30% are first-generation college students um, right. and their families, let alone medical. Uh, very yes. impressive. Um, we Another guest we had on Raise Line a couple months back was Ted Wendell at AT Still University, and we're uh, pretty close to, to Ted and Craig Phelps at ATSU. Um, And they similarly talk about attracting students from the communities so that they're more likely to stay in those communities, because there are some uh, discussions that we don't actually have a physician shortage in the U.S. It's more just distribution. However, it's probably a mix of both, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, osteopathic medicine is really interesting um, because you find osteopathic medical schools in the most unusual settings. So we sit in central Appalachia on right now, along with about three or four other osteopathic medical schools, most of which are sitting in, in towns of like three or 4,000. And when you think about, hey, where will I put a medical school? Let's put it in a little rural town. But that, that was what osteopathic medicine was founded to, to do. I mean, it's, it was never really intended to be a separate form of medicine. It was intended to improve the system of medicine of the, you know, of the day. When you think about it in the late 1800s, the common treatments were like leeches, bloodletting, et cetera. And, you know, the, the founder didn't, didn't want to start a new system of medicine. He just said, it's got to be a better way to treat patients. So on here, when you look at osteopathic medicine and where we exist around the nation, we tend to exist in places of greatest need, founded out of that need. You know, here, you know, one of the great success stories, the Ohio Osteopathic Association voluntarily raised their dues for two years to help us start the medical school here in 1975. So we have this like really strong uh, input from the community, from those areas because of that need for primary care physicians. And I do think you're right. I do think there's a combination of maldistribution 
and also just kind of the greater need for primary care on physicians. I do think it's a little bit of, on, of both of those. And solving the problem of how do we get physicians to practice where it's needed the most is, is hard. Especially with some of the trends we're hearing about with regards to rural hospitals closing. You know, that's been going on for some years as, as health systems have consolidated, uh, making access to care even harder in these rural settings. I would love to hear kind of what you've seen over the years. Um, and then let's get into COVID and how maybe that's accelerated some of the trends um, right. that maybe you've been seeing. Yeah. So, you know, part of my background, I've always been involved in training people to care for people where it's needed the most uh, and focused on primary care and or actually delivering that care. So I was a chief medical officer for Rural Health Network in Maine, and I joke around that I had more moose than people in my network. So how do you care for people across the geography when you don't have things like transit and other things like that to, um, to be able to um, care for folks? So there, I think you're talking about creating unique solutions to really um, help people. So one example we have on at Ohio University is we, we have two mobile clinics that we send out across. Ohio has 88 counties on Southeast Ohio. We covered up to 27 counties across Southeast Ohio where we show up in the BFW parking lot or the library or whatever, um, where we bring a nurse and physician uh, or nurse practitioner to provide primary care or immunizations or whatever the community needs and partner with others. We've had on partnering with Ohio Health where they have a mobile mammography unit. We show up and we run the breast and cervical health program. They come in, they get screened, they go right next door, they get a mammogram. And I'm so proud of programs like that. I've run and I was at the on Race for the Cure on, that we had in Athens. And one of the survivors who was the marshal for the day talked about how her life was saved one day from that, literally showing up at our at our van and immediately getting a mammogram and finding out that she has that she has breast cancer. So some of this I think is bringing care to the people. And then I think others are, is really just coming up and trying to expand on unique modes that allow access. Speaking of one, one of the unique modes that's gotten a lot of attention over the past few months because of COVID and the need for social distancing is obviously telemedicine. And so yes. we, we've spoken to several health system leaders, as well as uh, Joe Kvidar, who is the uh, president of the American Telemedicine Association, about what parts of telemedicine are here to stay versus um, maybe we will we'll revert back to pre-COVID times. Would love to hear your thoughts. I mean, how are you thinking of training your, your students, um, you, you um, know, your preceptors and faculty with regards to the need for virtual care and telemedicine now? Yeah, this is something we've been thinking of very deeply on ever since I came to Ohio. We had a grant that was just finishing its last phases when I first came here, helping rural practitioners adopt EHR, on which is kind of the earliest phase of shifting into an uh, electronic care. And then I, I tried to do things like in, in our Dublin campus, we partnered with a local telehealth on company that was very innovative in the way that they were trying to create a space that patients might resonate with a little bit on better to get that kind of on remote care. But the reason I did that is I wanted our students and faculty to be thinking about what this care delivery looked like in the not too distant future. And I, I joke around that like the modern stethoscope is on, you know, your iPhone, no provider can work on without it. So the interesting thing about, about COVID from my perspective, and I think that you've seen this in, in your other conversations is that it's really accelerated on telehealth and our partners, uh, you know, in my conversations with folks leading 
say the Cleveland Clinic or Nationwide Children's Hospital that we work with a lot as well, it's kind of like no going back uh, at this point. It's really, it's, it's accelerated and opened a door or maybe a better opened a window to allow us to provide care in a timely way and where it's needed the most. Now, you know, what I'll say is I, there's an area that I worry about with telehealth. So uh, the osteopathic approach is a very, um, you know, kind of hands-on holistic approach, but the basis of uh, osteopathic medicine, we don't own what I think is part of one of the most necessary things in healthcare delivery, which is care. And so we know that if the patient answers this simple question, my doctor knows me as a person, they're eight to nine times more likely to follow through with their, uh, with their instructions. So my, my big question is, you know, when we're in this like 2D world and, and meeting for the first time, how do you establish a caring relationship um, with someone who they feel cared for as a person and then that they would be more likely to go ahead and follow through with your recommendations? So I, I think there are some things that we have to do to evolve on how to do that. And I have a few ideas for you if, you, if you'd like me to share them. Totally. No, I'd love to hear how you're thinking about that. Like, I mean, I would love to hear how many students and residents you have too at Ohio, because how would you train them to have what's called, you know, proper website manner? It's not just, you know, bedside yeah. manner now, it's a website. Uh, yeah, that's a good way, to, good way to think about that. Yeah. So as we grew, you know, we grew, we have a thousand students across our on three campuses on, and affiliated with many on graduate medical education programs here around the state. We have about 3,500 clinical faculty on across our clinical on rotations. So we've grown to, to be a really pretty big enterprise. And we actually do our education across our three campuses simultaneously using distance education. On now on the student side, you know, I, I tell our students that they're digital natives. I mean, it's just not, when we first launched our first new campus, I wanted to create an environment where um, we had a window across each campus where there, a faculty member could be in one space or the other simultaneously teaching on both. And then when we, our third campus, we just continued that on. I wanted high fidelity, both video and sound. And I, I knew I had accomplished what I wanted when I was on our Dublin campus. I normally am on our Athens campus. And I heard one of our faculty teaching uh, and I walked down the hall and he was teaching from Athens and it just sounded that good. I thought he was in the room doing the lecture, but on uh, medical education, pre-COVID, we were doing simultaneous connected and distant education, connecting our campuses so that we could have a cardiologist in Cleveland talking to, um, you know, 250 students in Cleveland, Dublin, uh, in Athens, all at the all at the same time. So we had, I think we had, we've been we've been doing some kind of distance education like that for a couple decades with our distributed network of students around the around the state for clinical training. And it pre-COVID, it made us think about what's the future for for telemedicine and what does that uh, look like. So I think we had a good basis for that. With COVID, and what I've seen, it made me think about that on uh, even more. So a, cu- a couple things I think about is. A question like, how do you establish an empathic relationship with distance? Uh, and I think there are ways, uh, you know, like your, your web rules uh, that you have, but it may be 
telemedicine is here to stay. It's going to uh, expand. I mean, I joke around with my students that we'll have an eye device that you just put down on the table and a holographic 3D picture will come up. But we actually worked with a company that did some holographic work where patients respond a little bit better to 3D than, than 2D. But that's a joke. You know, you'll have that as the as a future piece where we continue to move forward. But my belief is that you have to spend some time with some very specific connecting points on two patients and maybe even need to change the way you communicate in paper with them electronically or whatever. There's a community health center that I does that end on really pretty well. And it may sound, you know, kind of a little hokey or funny, but they've changed even the way they were, they put out their uh, lab reports that says, Dr. Smith cares about you. Your cholesterol is elevated. And because he cares about you, you need to follow up. So it's not just the cold, hard facts that they're reporting. They're transmitting that the provider has a deep caring uh, relationship for the patient. So I think we have to be really pretty specific at changing. We, we can't just be 2D talking heads at the end of a screen or just transmitting facts that you can look up in my chart or whatever else you're looking up on in your phone as we shift more and more care into that more virtual environment. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. Um, before I started osmosis, I was in, in medical school as well. And there are a lot of transferable skill sets. Like when you meet a patient, how you make them feel comfortable is similar right. to when you meet a potential teammate or um, anyone really new, how do you make them feel comfortable and open up, right? And, and when you notice body language or facial expressions, micro facial expressions that you want to double click on, right? If they, um, you know, it's that, that uh, paradigm question when your doctor is about to leave the office, oh, doctor, one more thing, right? Like you want to elicit that because that right. one more thing could be like the thing, right? That you need to hear. How do you do that on a Zoom call? So it is a really interesting challenge that you all are facing. What are some of the other kind of challenges you face because of covid and, uh, and how have you addressed them? Yeah, so the biggest challenge was just as COVID was sweeping across the globe and coming to the United States, in which I was engaged in the university's response from that in my chief medical affairs officer role. We, we have faculty and students all over the globe, either doing research or, or training or on doing study abroad, as we had to withdraw and pull them all back on and you know think about how do we keep people safe and bring, bring them home locally, Things swept across Ohio really pretty fast. There was a Friday uh, where every medical school in the state of Ohio had students on clinical rotations. And by Monday night, they were all off of uh, rotations. Pulled them off just as PPE was becoming more limited. We weren't so sure that students were safe in the environment. They were being limited on the experiences that they could have. So one of the things I'm really proud of that we did was on that weekend, I called the Ohio Department of Health and I said, I have a crazy idea I'd like to run by you. And said, eh, what is that? I said, well, what if we trained all of our third year medical students in public health and deployed them to the 88 counties in Ohio to assist in the public health on response? And then I, um, I called my other good friend, Dr. Kane, and I said, hey, Bob, I have a crazy idea for you. He loved that idea as well. And we actually put together a... Um, kind of a national consortium that has allopathic, osteopathic medicine, PA, MPH, and et cetera, talking about how does students assist America on right now. But we did the pilot of that, which is using that group 
we were turned on to one of the other colleges that had a on um, 20 segmented training on uh, 20 segments for COVID, everything you can imagine, the epidemiology, special circumstances of pediatrics, OB, um, et cetera. So we, we put together in a 16-day period of time a clinical rotation for COVID um, where students were then deployed to public health, Ohio Department of Health, the National Guard, and we're engaged in that process. So it was my trying to make you know some pretty good lemonade out of uh, out of lemons. And I thought that students having the experience of COVID directly was the right thing to do. So that that was our early experience. And then we've transitioned all of our students back into clinical rotations. Right now, the goal's been to keep students in clinical rotations, kind of regardless of the clinical environment as long as it's safe and working with our partners to ensure that. And then on the medical school right now, uh, we're working in a hybrid model where all students for their face-to-face activities are clinical skills, OMM lab and anatomy. And then everything else is really being done virtually here right now. We've learned a lot. And I had a meeting with my uh, student leaders this morning at seven and that's uh, they report that that's all going really very well for them at this point. That's awesome. I mean, creating a whole rotation in 16 days is no small feat. And uh, a quote I always have shared with the team um, pretty frequently is actually from Lennon. Uh, he said, there are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happen. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I feel that. That's a good one. I like that one. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll make sure to send it to you. But um, yeah. yeah, okay. I mean, we, for example, at Osmosis, we created a, um, a, a three-hour CME COVID course in, in about a week that uh, we were only planning to continue medical education in like 2021 but we're like wow like mm-hmm. there's a real need for this and yes. now we have a mechanical ventilation course with a partner called Lairdal which makes mannequins and sim center dolls yeah so it's a very interesting time i think it's a uh, you know the pace of change hopefully will stay those circumstances will hopefully calm down right right you know given that you are a physician and you're a leader in education what uh, advice do you have to early stage healthcare professionals, your students, uh, about uh, dealing with the current crisis, uh, as well as the long term prospects of a career in healthcare? Yeah, a couple, a couple things. So, um, when I was orienting our new first year students, actually before they came in, I, I said that we are now literally, as opposed to figuratively, training you for your profession the day you walk in the door. You know, so I mean, all of our students are coming in with with masks, social distancing, washing hands, uh, et cetera. So my goal for the medical school in general was that we operate regardless of the environment around us and that we're training our students for the healthcare environment as they enter medical school. You know, one of the things that I strongly, strongly encourage our students to do, we have a great relationship and I try to have them give us feedback as they're walking through the process. They have great ideas on about how to evolve things, how to work on things. And I challenge every single class that comes in to give us the feedback to improve the process for them. I think one of the things that's a little tough to deal with is there's a natural element of fear and anxiety in this. I mean, because healthcare workers are on the front line. They're the ones that have a greater likelihood of getting exposure. So how, how can we give them the added skills for them to be safe this is the time that they're needed the most, without a doubt. And um, students are extremely creative, and I try to find ways to tap into their creative potential. So in their altruistic side, the volunteerism that they're doing on ways that they can do that in this environment. And then I I really feel like there's no 
better or more needed time for us to have on medical students in the uh, in the profession. So I guess I have my advice would don't be shy on uh, giving your respectful feedback on as as you're walking through your program. That's great advice. I wish more um, uh, medical education leaders uh, expressly stated that. Uh, in fact, when I was a medical student, sometimes we felt a bit rebellious creating osmosis. Uh, oh, so so when I was a medical student, you had a lot of people with their glasses on looking down at you. Yes. Did you really say that? Is that what you meant? Uh, <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, totally. And, and that, that the, the sort of hierarchy, I think, applies clinician to patient and oftentimes oh, turning the patient into an empowered uh, uh, consumer of their own health uh, and provider of their own health is, is really, I think it's also a macro trend we're seeing with the rise of direct to consumer type healthcare. Um, there's clearly an advantage to that where people get engaged in their health, they understand it better. Um, but then there's also the negatives of maybe they uh, become cyberchondriacs, as as one would call it. Oh, that that can definitely happen, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm really impressed with everything you guys have done at Ohio University. And um, again, I've taken you well over your time for this okay. podcast. But I'm curious. My last question is: Is there anything else I should have asked that you'd like to be able to uh, to share with our audience? No, I guess I would just close with uh, thank you for the appreciation of uh, of our medical school. I feel like we have a very um, special program uh, that we have here. You know, our, our kind of tagline is care leads here. And we, we think about that in a few different ways, which is we're producing kind of the future leaders of healthcare. So I want them to be in kind of that leading role, but taking a caring approach to that. We start with our patients, you know, in caring for them. And then probably you know, one of the important things in training is we try to create a caring environment for each other here. It's medical school is very hard. It's very stressful. Uh, and we try to create a, a supportive environment and encourage folks to um, to be supportive of, of each other. So I'm very, very proud of what we're doing at Ohio University and our with our faculty, staff, and just truly phenomenal uh, students. I joke around with them a little bit. I say, you know, I can be your executive dean. I'm not sure I could be your peer. I mean, they're just so phenomenal. They're bright, uh, they're kind, they're caring, altruistic. And uh, my meeting with my student government this morning was really around, I, I try to tell them, how can I support you on uh, in being student leaders? Because, you know, they they set the tone for the class and they they can really kind of help their peers be, you know, just truly phenomenal. And medical school's hard. And um, we don't have to make it harder. I think there's any way we can make it easier. And I guess one one last thing that I really believe in is that medical school can really be a transformative time on for people and transformative in the sense of I feel like it's my job to give students opportunities to change as a person and to help them with that, you know, kind of along the way. I mean, it's certainly giving them the knowledge, skills and attitude. But when you have uh, an experience where you're holding the hand of a dying person in hospice or delivering a newborn to a couple that's been wanting a baby for seven years. I mean, those are really incredible periods of time and truly transformative. And there's the good and the bad and ugly of all of that, which is it's really stressful. Uh, and we know there's a lot of burnout, anxiety, depression, suicide. With that, I think that if we can create an environment of support, and recognize that and help our students be really resilient through all of that, that they'll be really successful and, and fulfilled in their, in their careers. I couldn't agree more. I think uh, there's a national uh, recognition of that. And it sounds like you guys are putting a lot of things in place to actually turn that into reality. So with that, uh, Dr. Johnson, I'd really like to thank you for your time today and, and the insightful conversation. Yeah, I 
thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, thank you for the really great questions. Awesome. And, and with that, I'm Shivivani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line since we're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>